Hello and welcome to Fungibility. Another great week, midst of the summer, which is also winter in the crypto world, but don't worry about that. So had a nice relaxing weekend at, at the beach. You know, that's the, the best days of summer, the ones where you get to do nothing. But I'm back recording this episode. Have a great show lined up today. You know, looking at the crypto world, the NFT world, there's there's a lot going on. One of the recurring topics has been of uh, Yuga Labs, the folks behind the Board 8 project. And it's interesting because one of the things that, you know, people love about NFTs is you kind of own the thing. Once you get an NFT, you, you can do whatever you want with it. But that only goes so far. And one of the things that the team at Yuga Labs has said is we say that they essentially own the intellectual property. That image, although you're allowed to use it, in kind of any way you like, the actual image that, you know, sort of underpins, think of it like their version of Mickey, Mickey Mouse, sorry, sorry yeah, Disney, is is theirs. And, and you know, you, you might be able to use it on the cover of your, of your, you know, store or cereal box, but essentially the, the actual asset beyond that is theirs. And a lot of the other NFT projects are saying, you know, you, the trademark that you get when you get the NFT is yours. So you kind of own the whole thing from soup to nuts. So there's a lawsuit going on for um, that's a class action lawsuit. Uh, Scott and Scott is currently organizing a class action lawsuit against Hugo Labs, according to an announcement from the firm this week. And essentially, they're suing this uh the Yuga Labs for promoted Bored Apes and ApeCoin and saying that uh, they have the right to do whatever they want with it. So it, it, the moral story is kind of interesting to watch. I, I would say this. If you're looking at different NFTs and you think that you want to base your IP or some other application, website, game, burger joint off someone's IP, look into it. Make sure that that IP is something that you can actually do. You own it in the sense that you own the NFT, but do you really own what that NFT represents? Take a closer look and, you, and you'll hopefully do better. Again, got a great show lined up today. Record this a couple weeks ago. I've been doing a lot of that. So you'll notice that the 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 intros that I record are basically the day or, or so when I, when I release it and, and I've got a bit of a backlog. If you're interested in being on the show, please reach out. There's a number of ways to do that. We've got a, a, a Telegram group. You can go check out the website. You can tweet us on Twitter at OX, that's a zero, OX Fungibility on Twitter, or track down uh, my always impressive executive producer, Laura. And thank you. Welcome back. We've got an episode and a guest today from one of my favorite countries, the country I, I currently reside in, Canada. Uh, Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've got to know each other over the last several months. You're very active in the Cello ecosystem, a kind of co-cohort of you uh, of the sort of uh, Flory Foundation Investment Fund. And you've got a really interesting project that, that I think I, I think is probably one of the more interesting projects I've seen over the last several months in the music space. Maybe you could take a minute to tell us a little more about what you're doing and, and your background. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, yeah, we we're sort of part of the cello, I think the first cohort, or you, I think you were even maybe a bit before us, and I was right behind you. So, you know, EQ is my third um, startup. My first startup was in digital animation across uh, professional sports leagues. So I was kind of like, you know, 
aware of the the metaverse ish we called it you know again virtual worlds whatever you want to call it and you know that was my first uh, startup for a decade and then you know my second startup was actually focused on the connection between emotional wellness and finance and I created a healing modality called the Hava. And it was during that that I really started to dive into like, what are the components of, of finance and the financial aspect of our lives, which really led me to building EQ in the music industry. I had some clients that were, were, were um, artists. And, you know, one of the things that was most prevailing on their, on their being was the fact that the contracts they signed really prevented them from any kind of mobility. And in many cases, they, you know, you think it's all great to sign, be signed by a label, et cetera. And what it really did was create sort of this indentured servitude in many cases. And that really stuck with me. And so when the emergence of Web3 started to happen, um, of course, meeting Sep from Cello was a huge sort of pinnacle, like incredible moment. I thought, you know, maybe I could look at Web3 from a finance point of view to solve this emotional sort of pain of signing away your, your rights. And there is a lot of this sort of, you call it indentured servitude within the sort of entertainment industry. Your big, your big break generally involves you signing all rights uh, to the, the stuff that you create to your, your managers and your labels. And then they basically act as like this marketing vehicle for you. And then by the time, if you're lucky enough to, to be successful, you realize you really don't have anything at the end of the day. So you're trying to change that model and make it a little more, you know, equal? Yeah, absolutely. Like if you think about it, like startups, remember when you first build an idea and the first person who wants to give you money, it's like, I'll give you five grand for 50%, you know, and like startups, we would never say yes, but we now know better. Like if you think about an artist, oftentimes some of the most incredible artists also grow up in neighborhoods that are tough. You're looking at women, people of color, there's a lot of cultural circumstances there, but yet they're incredibly talented and drive culture. And so someone comes in and is like, I'm gonna change your life with this contract. And it's usually that first contract, the very first deal they sign that really sort of sets this double-edged sword. Like, yes, you think you've made it, but in the meantime, you've signed everything away. With EQ, we really want artists to not, you know, especially emerging artists and mid-tier artists, if you think about it, we don't want them to sign a deal yet. It doesn't mean that a deal could be always bad. It just means at the start of the career, you're really able to build some power and really maintain the ownership of your intellectual property. And on your website, uh, eq.exchange, I, I saw you have this declaration of, of independence, which is yes. really interesting, right? Where you have these sort of, you know, truths, I think you described them to be self-evident. It's almost like the uh, U.S. Constitution here. And, you, and I think the first one I see here is the belief that music is a fundamental human right. That, mm -hmm. That's an interesting statement. You know, I, I, think, I think food, I think air, I think healthcare. Sorry, sorry, my American friends. And then I think... Well, music, like, tell right. me more about this. You know, if you think about it, there's probably a memory that every single human being has that is related to music. Maybe it's church. Maybe it's the first lullaby that you heard. If you think about every memory you've ever had, there's probably a soundtrack that goes with it. Uh, even when you watch a movie, there's music there. Everything about it is like music has been there. You know, it's the one thing that if you have voice, if you have hands that you can clap, you can tap, you can make sound and music. And so the business of the music industry 
is really what, what changed this whole notion of creativity and who owns the creativity. And, and so when we say music is a human basic right, we really do believe that it is the human's right to own what they create. And that's really what we're saying. And music is in everything. You can't watch a hockey game without music. You can't go to a basketball game without music. You can't go to a movie. You can't, there's so many things. People put music on when you're in childbirth, like music is, is in the background of all of our lives. Yet we've never thought about the owners that create it. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. So you're, you're looking to create this sort of web three enabled music ecosystem where you've now democratize the approach to not only the, the creation of music, but the mechanisms of reward for that, you know, whether it's a royalty or plays mm -hmm. or other various types of, of user engagement. It, mm -hmm. it, am I getting the story correct? A hundred percent. You're, you exactly right there. You know, we, we believe that music is a digital asset of which the creator owns and which over time, can increase in value and different songs mean different things and different NFTs. I always say different, not all NFTs are created equal. And so, you know, it's really like, if you think about it, I kind of think about it in real estate terms, like your first piece of music is your first door and you may get a mortgage on it or you're paying rent. You know, it's sort of like the way you think about it. Uh, but over time, you really build what is the foundation of your intellectual property underneath you. And you're not alone. There's a number of different uh, folks who have popped up sort of with Web3 enabled music labels and projects. Right. I think notably Snoop Dogg came up with a Web3 album or, or sort of label, I guess he's calling it. Well, I, I think it's like Death Row now. I think he bought that and rebranded re it. So yeah. you know, what are some, some of the things that are sort of happening in the space that, that you find interesting? You know, I think you see a lot of things around the music artists sort of utilizing NFTs as a utility. So not necessarily a revenue portion to it, the driver to it, but mostly like really seeing it for utility and access and artists accessing it that way. I think there's some interesting things on, you know, Royal has done a few things. They would probably be most similar to us. You know, they, they've done some interesting projects around royalties and, and really providing the share of that. Like if we look at what's What's happened with, I can't remember the band right now, they gave all of their, um, for the next couple of years, a big portion of royalties away for free. Um, and so there are some different examples of ways that people are utilizing it. What we really see it as that is probably slightly different is we sort of look at this as a long game and we see the NFT as kind of the first, I want to say proof of concept, A-B testing, the first tool of what we see are going to be numerous different tools in the toolbox for artists to be able to leverage. And we see the NFT as just basically the first step towards that. And a, a big part of what you're doing is around sort of, as you point out, the royalty and the rights of the actual uh, you know, asset that's being created and, and the people involved in the production of it. So if you have a team of 10 people someone's on drums and someone else is producing and so on, you've got sort of mechanisms to sort of define who gets yes. what and when? Yes, absolutely. You know, you and I've had this conversation around the split and we really heard this from a lot of artists, but also we, we didn't want to isolate, you know, independent labels, for example, or independent managers, those systems that have already existed. Now, not all of them are bad that it live in Web2. So it was like, how do you still honor some of the parts that actually work? whether it's publishers or different aspects of the music industry. And so the way that we said, well, we need to have multiple splits 
and allow for different percentages. And it actually began with our charity component because I wanted to have a percentage of every, every NFT sale on our platform that a portion be defaulted at least 1% to charity. So then that added in the conversation around, you know, what EQ takes, which we only take 3%. That's it. We don't control the music. So then it was like, well, what about producers and songwriters and managers? So we allow for all of the multiple splits, depending on the percentages and the conversations that they've already had. And so that everyone is then incentivized and focused on the ultimate goal, which is to make the best NFT for the collectors and the fans. And you've taken it in, I, I promise you, I wouldn't go too much in the tech and I won't, but you, you've taken an interesting <laughs> approach with the specification. So just as a you know brief intro to the world of NFTs, there's predominantly two different specs. There's the 721, which was popularized by CryptoKitties and, and sort of digital collectibles in general, they're expensive. And if, if you've ever tried to buy uh, an NFT on Ethereum in particular, you're, you're often spending more on transactional costs than you are for the actual NFT and they fail frequently. And then there's another spec that was created to, to sort of encapsulate both fungible and non-fungible tokens into a singular, I guess, smart contract, which is the 1155 specification. Mm -hmm. And what you've described in terms of the royalty aspect actually makes a lot of sense for the 1155 specification because it sort of encapsulates the asset directly as part of the smart contract, which in most simple terms means you can do things that don't that don't cost a lot for in terms of transactions, but you can yeah. also track things much more effectively. Mm -hmm. The one drawback to the 721 when it comes to things like royalties, in my opinion, is if you are if you're trading those, you know, outside of the particular um, OpenSea or a particular, you know, marketplace, you really don't have any control over how those sort of royalties get sort of di dis distributed. Right. But I think in your scenario, you've sort of solved that issue. Yeah, to a, I think to a degree, and I think we still have some more beautiful technology to make for this to streamline it even more so. But you know, when we collect a royalty, EQ collects on behalf of the collectors for the artist. So the artist assigns us as one of the payees, we collect in fiat, we convert it into tokens, and then we can automate all of the payments to all of the, the token holders that have whatever the song, the specific song and the specific percentage that is attached to it. And we did choose an 1155 token. And you know, there was like so many like prevailing different ideas. And, and I was torn as the founder and I just felt for the most basic use case. And this is where I think that the world of this will, will grow and change in the world of, of web three, because we're so early in the technology was that it really allowed for that multiple splits. It allowed for multiple fractional owners, and it really allowed us to be able to, to create a, a cohesive tracking system for those royalty payments. Oh, that's a really good point. And there's so much happening in the world of NFTs and sort of the more audible parts of, of the landscape. I think that, you know, anyone who's listened to my podcast knows that I'm obviously quite into music. We've had several music guests over the last uh, couple of months. You know, where's this all heading? Like, what's what's the next thing that where, where does this evolve? Is there video and multimedia web, you know, the multiverse, the web verse, this, you know, where, where's it go? Yeah. You know, I think that there's a couple of different ways. I think that some of, I think part of the music platforms are going to go heavy metaverse. And then there's going to be some of us that are probably going to go into like the infrastructure finance play, which I think you can still gamify. 
Because I think the one thing that we need to keep in mind with an artist's life, and I think that you, you feel this and know this as well, is there's like really still three core issues that an artist has. One is access to capital. The only reason why that it's really attractive, if everyone's being honest with themselves, that the NFTs as such had this explosive is because they see they saw an opportunity for revenue. And yes, they want to bring in their fans and engage with their fans. And of course, that's all still here. But ultimately, you have a big swath of, of artists that don't get paid very much when their music streams on Spotify. That's just a reality. The second part of it is they're really still looking for collaborations. Like, how do I work with that producer? Hey, can I get that songwriter? Hey, do you have a writing room? Like, those are still things that artists want, including like, can I get on the bill for that festival? Can I be the opening act? Like those things that are still part of the music industry are still really important. We believe by bringing that in and aggregating those services is the place that we want to go because we think we can tokenize that. And then for the collectors, like, hey, a collector's like, hey, can I be a roadie? Can I be a volunteer at that festival? How do we further increase the participation in this world of that? And again, going back to sort of the financial management of this is we see the NFTs as just one of many future tools in an artist's lifespan. And, you know, and that's where you kind of come back to like artists are startups. And if you and I being in startups, you and I both in this game probably far too long, right, Ruben, is like we know that it takes different types of capital at different points of your career to build a startup. And if we take that same mentality and apply it to artists, they need different financial tools. They need different financial services and different types of services, marketing services and otherwise at different points in their career. And this is where I think Web3 is the most exciting for an artist's career for the long term. Yeah, as you point out, it takes capital to do things, not, not necessarily a lot of capital, depending on what you're doing, but it does. you can't just build something from nothing. And I think that when you start thinking of the mechanisms that Web3 have in the, the sort of ability to engage your fan base, not just from the point of view of attention, listening to your songs, that sort of thing, but in a, in a way that allows them to be an active participant yes. in the creation. And that yes. could be a, a financing mechanism or it could literally Volunteer. be. It could be anything. Yeah. They yeah. could be your digital. They could be your best digital marketing team. Like, you know, like that's it. We have a thing. I'm so glad that you said that because we call our NFT Megs. And, and if it's up to us, we will like rename Megs, which we say is a mutual exchange of gifts. And if we come back to even like, you know, with Cello, you know, I built on Cello and we talk about sacred economics and it talked about this whole gifting economy. But really, like artists have to see their fans as fans see their artists. It's not a one way relationship. It's not like, oh, listen to my music all the time because I'm awesome. It's more about what's this mutual exchange of gifts. And I think that that's where the Web3 world is, is moving. It's not passive, as you said, in Web2, where we just act passively listening. It's active. And your fan base sometimes can be your best mindshare group. Like they know like what's good, what's not. They can sometimes be a lot more of a collaborative partner than just a one-way relationship and listen to my music and buy my tickets. Yeah. And this is a conversation I was actually having earlier with one of my advisors. And, you know, I was telling him, hey, we've got this play to earn platform. He's like, no. It's not play to earn. It's engage to earn. And it got me thinking because I had, it's a, it's been like 
what exactly is play to earn, right? It's, well, I'm playing, I guess, a game. But, it, you know, when we look at the real opportunities, it's, it's, a, it's more than just playing. It's, it's, it's a two-way street, as you point out. It's, it's fostering an ecosystem of, of users and fans and customers that are equally incentivized both to, to help, as you point out, and, you know, get something in return for that help. And of I think course. that that you start looking at that from that point of view, it's it's I, I think I think my, my my one problem with the way music's worked for the last 20 years is it's been one sided. It's yeah. like I, I consume and yeah. that's it. Or I, I bought and I don't even I didn't really buy anything, really. I'm buying. I, I used to at least get a disc that I could feel. Now I'm buying things I can't even touch. So I, it, it was a one way sort of, you know, street. Uh, completely. And I think you're seeing the projects that are bombing that music, because there's been some bombs out here, right, with the NFT space and people that have launched in the music industry. And there's been a lot of pushback because I think that that exhausted relationship of like, I am the music artist, you guys are my fans, buy what I'm telling you. And I think that whole sort of passive um, notion of the relationship, just the psychology of the relationship has changed. And again, I think the more that artists really start to understand the assets of your collectors as your mutual exchange of gifts, now you have some power because they themselves also have a certain amount of validation of their own taste and their own human experience and their own gifts. And I think to honor collectors this way is is the future of Web3 and those artists that don't are going to get left behind because eventually... You know, this is where there's this changing of the guard, because before it was just like, I'm I'm a superstar and you should all buy what I sell you, like whatever, whatever I give you. Right. You should all just go buy my makeup, buy this, buy my clothing because I put my name on it. And people are calling that out now, like Gen Z's. I love them. I have two of them in my house. That generation of of kids and teenagers, they're different, right? They have a different expectation and a different level of confidence. So I think the artists that really start to understand that and almost humble themselves to that will do really well in this space. And they've got a different mechanism for music discovery and sort of Mm -hmm. consumption. You know, I've also got a house full of of Gen Zs. And and (laughs) if if you look at the way my kids you know one discover music it's almost always social like tiktok sort of instagram you know they they see some 10 second clip of someone doing a dance and they're like i know that song or the the this sort of idea that they they have a at least a connection to the creator through this social media that that at least makes them feel like they're involved in their life somehow and yeah. i think that there's this you know connection that that didn't necessarily exist in previous generations no No, because now you have it's kind of interesting because if you look at tiktok and what's happening there you have their own creative spins on elements and now you have those that would quote unquote be famous watching their videos and you know it's kind of this really interesting change in the relationship because you know good bad or ugly about tiktok i do think it's also shown a lot of creativity like i literally almost like pee my pants laughing at half of the videos they can put on tiktok like those <laughs> those humans are wonderfully creative and i think that there's something to be said about this change and i think that like even maybe our generation like you'd see you know it was sort of again this very one way relationship where where now there is this two way relationship and i think that's what web3 is about yeah i think that one of the the issues that we face with the current sort of crop of 
of creator tools for the music world, you've got things like YouTube, which have done a pretty good job of really sort of promoting and rewarding their their sort of best users. You know, you've got the plaques when you get 100K and all these various things that they're trying to do along the way. And then you get TikTok that basically says, yeah, thank you, but gives you nothing really in return. So mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, it's nothing against TikTok. I, I love the videos, but it, they've created <laughs> the, the, the ultimate walled garden. It's like, hey, build a barely, the world's most valuable social network literally overnight, and we will give you attention, but nothing other than that. Right. And it, it, they're trying to give more, but I guess, but generally speaking, your only real reward is a large following. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that seems problematic. Well, and I think it's, I think that a lot of those platforms, again, are, are going to be moving towards a Web3 dynamic where, again, your passiveness is now active. And, and if I'm going to be active and I'm going to give you my active listening, taste, ideas, time, that 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 requires a reward that requires a payment that requires an exchange of what can be a, the financial exchanges and otherwise and i think that that's where it's like really moving into this ownership economy that i see happening in web3 which is really exciting uh for me to watch just you know i've been through a few different iterations in the tech industry um, like I was here for like desktop to mobile transition where everyone's like, you gotta have to be on mobile. And, you know, and then now it's sort of like moving to like, you better create a platform that really does think about this reward system further to what you guys are doing so well with a word pool, right? Like you're really going to need to think about how, how you are engaging with humans, because I think at the end of the day, we all kind of exhausted mass consumption and we're coming to the tail end of like, we can only consume so much more. And now we're looking for things that are a lot more active in our lives. Oh, for sure. It's, it's, it's funny. I've had a lot of conversations regarding music over the last few weeks. And I, I haven't really thought about the work that I did back in my old days at, at, when I was designing the first interface for Napster. But one of the things that, we, that drew the sort of early Napster crew together wasn't this idea that we were going to, you know, allow people to sort of steal music, you know, that that was sort of the media story that that sort of emerged right. around it. It's like, hey, this is this is going to destroy music. No one's going to make any money. That wasn't the intention. Actually, the intention was was to create a, an environment that that was more egalitarian that allowed us to share the, to discover and hopefully if we had ever got a chance to do it, reward, you know, for, for those sorts of things as in a sort of decentralized approach. Right. Problem was. You know those damn guys at, at Sony and and um, yeah. and and uh, Metallica showed up and said we were stealing their music without ever giving us a chance to actually explain our vision. Right. But and, and when you look back on that too, they sued the fans. Yeah. <laughs> like, they sued the fans. Who, <laughs> what the hell? Like, <laughs> like you screwed your fans. Like it was. It, if you look back on it, it was like I get the point. And I understand sort of the pride and the ownership and that part of it, but ultimately you sued your fans. Well, yeah, I actually, on a complete side note, every now and again, the Metallica song comes up on Spotify and and I I actually enjoy, I actually enjoy Metallica, but you know, then I start thinking about the, you know, the time they they tried to sue me into the ground and I I get a little weird tinge there, but uh, I'd love to have Lars and the crew on, on this podcast. If you're ever listening. I can imagine. And (laughs) and at the end of the day, it's a, a large portion of the artist's responsibility as well to push back to the labels, right? Because 
you know, because the, the fan doesn't have a lot of control of where this music shows up or where it lives. So, you know, the fact that, that Spotify exists, good, bad and ugly again, that that's not a fan decision. You know, those those are decisions that happen amongst the labels in a, in a tech startup. And before you know it, artists are just having to participate as now. Um, fans are just served it up and we like it because it's, you know, mass consumption again on music, but it did devalue the industry. But at the end of the day, if artists want to have real change in my mind is they need to push back on the Sony's of the world and, and stop signing these deals because if they keep signing these deals and these keep getting presented, there's no, there's no motivation to change. Well, here's the irony of the whole situation. They, you know, 20 years ago, their biggest threat was decentralization, right? Oh, it's going to destroy the industry. There's, no one's going to make any money. And, and, and what was the solution? They created a centralized, you know, you know duopoly of music sort of outlets. Yes. And you, you, now rather than getting paid a dollar, you're getting paid a penny. You know, yeah. that, that's your solution to, you know, the problem is to, is to, is to take a $10 billion business and make it a two. Right. You know, and that was, what was so interesting. Again, like if you sort of look at what's even happening now in Web3, you see a lot of the labels covertly. I won't name any names, but we met with an artist that said, oh, no, we got to notice we're not allowed to do NFTs because our music label is launching a Web3 platform. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm like, OK, so here they go again. They're going to create their own technology spin out the FD NFTs on there. And the, and the artists will be in the exact same situation, if not potentially worse, because now they won't see the real potential. And there was another product that was buying out NFT rights, which is nonsensical because like, you don't need to sell your NFT rights. You already own it. Like there is no, them selling your NFT or you yourself selling the NFT does not make a difference. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You have the same equal opportunity, but there are players right now that are buying out artists NFT rights. And I sort of just go a little bit red in the face and steam through my earballs and my outside my eyes. It's kind of going, no, no, no. Like that's the kind of the opposite of Web3. It totally is. And but here's the problem with Web3 in general. It's 99% of the Web3 projects you see pop up are basically X for Web3. And you saw that in the early generation of web properties that popped up. Right. You know, we're we're going to be X for the internet. And, we're the and, Uber of this. <laughs> yeah, or or yeah, or the Uber of that, or or and so nobody, a lot of people, let's just say, don't have the ability to reimagine what the technology potentially can do beyond what they already know. And I think that what will truly transcend the Web three movement isn't just creating what we've already done and slapping a decentralized you know, logo on it. It's, it. it's about using the technology to fund, fundamentally reimagine what that, you know, what music is and how it can be consumed, how it can be distributed, how it can be monetized using this technology, not just I'm mm -hmm. going to buy the rights and to be a record label that happens to be Web3. Right. And I think that's the other thing, like, I think why your program is so important and like more to really sort of bring the issues forward is because a lot of things, again, are disguised as Web3. Hey, we're Web3, but it's the same, you know, it's the same shit, you know, it's a different file, right? Like it's the same stuff. And, and I think that the unfortunate part is that unless you know some of the inside workings of this, you know, it's often, again, artists that are, you know, really the ones that struggle. And I think at the end of the day, 
you know, it's important for us to just bring this all transparently forward and, and be open and, and clear about it so that people really can, can utilize this space in the beautiful way that it can be utilized. Well, I'm very well said, and I, I completely agree with, with your, your sentiment and what you're building. Now, for those who are not familiar with this podcast, maybe tuning in for the first time, if you go to fungibility.co, you can learn more about our guests and, and things that we've been discussing on this particular podcast. You can get some points and you can redeem those points for this episode or some of the previous episodes, which are actually minted on the blockchain. Uh, since Janice is part of the cello world, I'm going to go on a limb here and say we're going we're gonna to mint this one to the cello blockchain. Thank get a you. Few- yeah, a few extra carbon credits, hopefully, a couple trees planted somewhere. Um, but for those uh, who are not familiar with you or your project, where can they learn more about you? Yeah, for sure. Just head on over to eq.exchange. Um, please, you know, check out all of the NFTs and the artists that we already have for sale there. There's some amazing artists to back and to learn about and to discover. If you are looking for partnership, please hit me up on Twitter. Just be Janice. Um, I am always answering all my DMs. So please hit me up at at just be Janice on Twitter and and I'll be sure to get in touch. Well, uh, again, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm, I'm your host, Ruve, uh, RUV on Twitter. I I'm unfortunately not as good at following up on my DMS as it sounds like (laughs) Janice is, but you can give it your best shot. And, uh, this is fungibility. Thank you. Thank you.